Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas with Bela and Mike. Hi, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from Clarkson University. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship here at Clarkson University. And coming from you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management here at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. First, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy listening to this as much as we enjoy creating it. Second, we like to reaffirm why we do this, uh, and it really is uh, something that we love to do. Uh, we like to learn from smart and interesting people about how the world is changing. Um, we're passionate about innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, and we like to overlay our observations about these topics uh, and compare them with lessons that we've each learned over our three-plus decades as entrepreneurs and investors and managers and professors. In order to do this, we've put together our network of interesting friends, former students, business partners, and other people we've met along the way recently to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship. And the thing that ties us together is stories about people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. Before we get to today's guest, a quick thank you to our sponsors, Clarkson University and Munster University of Applied Sciences. So talk about interesting people, Mike. Rob Salafio was one heck of a guest. Here's a guy who started out as a street performer. Yep, you heard that right. A street performer, juggling and doing all mime and those types of things on the streets. And he now transformed that into a management and leadership consulting business. And he's even written a book, Leading from Your Best Self. Uh, the link to that will be in our show notes. So I thought this was a really great example of sort of the unconventional path. So what did you think, Mike? Well, you know, Bela, I've always been kind of half curious and half highly skeptical about coaching and leadership development. And I'll be honest, it always kind of seemed more like an art than a science to me. Um, but I've also always been really curious about how entrepreneurs can better move from the startup phase to the growth phase successfully. And there's a big gap there. We both have seen it, I think, um, where the business launches and it's successful. And to get it to scale and to get it to really grow, um, the, the entrepreneur can't handle it and, and they have to be replaced. And it's never pretty. Um, so, and I teach this, right? I'm, I'm right actually at the point this week where I've spent 12 weeks talking about all the things that can go wrong with a startup. Uh, and now we talk about what to do when things don't go wrong, when they in fact go amazingly well and you have to scale quickly. Um, we use the example of if you've been reading at all or you've, you're a food person at all, this idea of the competition between Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods with these burgers that have no meat in them. Uh, and now I think in the U.S. you can get them at many Burger Kings and things like that. So this is a, an issue of growth. And how do these founders move the company from a small startup to a big food company? Um, so I was excited when you told me that Rob's going to join us. Uh, I think uh, the issues that Rob's going to talk about are exactly these skills that I think entrepreneurs really need um, to scale their business and to deal with success. So yeah, Bela, let's get into the interview with Rob and, and see what Rob had to say. Hello, listeners. Bela Musitz here, and welcome to the Unconventional Path podcast. Today, I have a wonderful guest, Rob Salafia. Uh, who has just this very, very intriguing background and clearly fits the title of our uh, podcast as The Unconventional Path. I think he's uh, the epitome of an unconventional path for an entrepreneur, and uh, we're, we're going to get into that uh, great conversation uh, during this podcast. So welcome, Rob. Thank you very much for having me, Bella. 
Yeah, sure. My pleasure. So uh, here's my first question. If you're at a networking event and you walk up to somebody and you introduce yourself, uh, what do you say? Well, I try not to introduce myself right away to someone. I usually just say, hi, I'm Rob Salafia. But if somebody asks me, hey, what do you do? So I help people build confidence. I help people be or find that extraordinary part of themselves. And then, so what does that mean? So yeah, Explain that a little bit. Great. So I, I say, well, I take 20 years of uh, experience of being in theater, performing arts, and I've taken that experience now and apply it to business leaders, where I help them find their voice, I help them show up more powerfully, build executive presence, and be able to have a point of view, be able to share that point of view. And, and, and how do you do that, Rob? What's sort of the, what's sort of the mechanism that you use for that? Well, that's, a, that's a, you know, I'm a trained executive coach. Let's start there first. So I'm a, I work at MIT uh, as a leadership center, MIT leadership center master executive coach. So I coach probably about 40 to 50 mid-career executives there a year in their one-year Sloan Fellows Program, which is the one-year residential MBA, and the EMBA, so the, that's their two-year non-residential MBA program. These are people from 35 to 42, and these are people that have had predominantly linear careers, and they come to a place, they come to a time in their life where they realize, wow, I've been going, I've been climbing the ladder one step at a time, I've been doing everything that's been told of me, and then, you know, like, What's next? You know, like, like, like how, how do I create, you know, meaning and purpose in my life? Uh, am I, I've, I've just had this first half of my career, 15 years. What am I going to do with that next half or that second third, let's say, part of my career? And can I, can I turbo boost it? And so uh, as a coach and the coaches that are on, on the cadre that we work with help people to discover what that is. To understand what, what it, where have they been, where are they now, and where do they want to go? What do they want? And then discover those things, those barriers, those, those, either those affirming uh, forces that help them uh, get there, or discover those restraining forces, the things that it could be uh, uh, held beliefs, uh, you know, anything inside that prevents them from self-sabotage or really achieving what it is that is really going to um, fulfill them, you know, give them a sense of, you know, I really did what I wanted to do. So uh, can you maybe give us an example of a challenge that someone, I mean, these are all pretty much high potential folks, right? They're, they're probably doing quite well in their careers, I could imagine. Yes. And uh, so can you, can you t talk a little bit about maybe an example of one of the things that you deal with and sort of how you, how you coach that person through something like that? Sure. I'll, I'll, two of them come to mind when you ask that question. One is, uh, there's a fellow that I worked with from South America who was, this, he worked for a consulting company. He was a rainmaker. Uh, he was just prolific in being able to develop client relationships, bring them in. Uh, and, and, and so they said, so you're so successful, come into the corporate office and let's, let's build on this. And he wasn't immediately successful. In our first session, he said to me, why won't they do what I tell them to do? 
And I said, thank you very much. You, you did my job for me. Because inherent, and I just repeated it back to him, inherent in that is, look at who he was. He was single. He was driven. He worked, he had no kids. He worked, you know, uh, 24-7 on the weekends, all this time. And now he had a team working for, for him that had a different profile. So how do you, as a leader now, understand and get each one of your team members to help them work, work optimally. You know, what is their family situation? What's important to them? What do they value? He was imposing his value set right. and his work ethic on them and not seeing them for who they were. And that's the job of a leader is to really look at who's my team and each person has, what's that key? Like I have to recognize their potential and then unleash that. And how can I do that? So that they can feel like, wow, you know, we always work better when somebody gets us and they understand us and that we want to work harder for them, they'll work harder for us. So it's a, it's a virtuous cycle. He was getting frustrated. And that was, a, I'd say, a, a, that was a, a moment of maturity for him. That, that's that adult stages of development. He had to grow into a new mindset. I, yes. I have to think yes. differently now. Yes. So uh, one thing you said there that I, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, oftentimes uh, in organizations, you see someone who's very successful at what they do. Uh, maybe technology, they're a really good engineer or programmer, or they're really good in sales or rainmaking. And then what the organization does is they promote them. And now they're sort of responsible for as you just described, th this person really made me think of this, right? Now the sort of responsibilities and skill sets are often very, very different from what they were doing previously. And people struggle with that. And some organizations, if they're large enough, uh, you know, they have some resources to help you through that. Or in my days at working at IBM, they sent you off to, you know, various different manager schools where they, where they co coached you through that, so to speak, that, yep. hey, this is a different world now. So I just wanted you to maybe uh, uh, talk a little bit more about that and the challenges involved in those types of transitions uh, for leaders, right? Because think about an entrepreneur starting a company. There's two or three people, maybe. And, and you know, like I just say, everybody knows what's going on because there's only two or three of you. <laughs> And now all of a sudden the organization starts growing, your role as an, a, an entrepreneur or leader changes, uh, you're very driven, some of your employees may be, some may less so, and how do you sort of deal with all those things? So, so, so there's inside of your, your question, there's a number of questions. So I'm going to answer it one way here, is um, entrepreneurial mindset. Mm -hmm. like what is it that you really love about what you do? If, if there are some people that are initiators, they love to get that seed idea. They love to get that energy of, of building from scratch. And you, just as you said, the, the initial team, they're tight. Everyone's doing a little bit of everything. So that every person has to have that entrepreneurial mindset. If they see something that needs to happen, they have to go do it. They can't wait for somebody. Well, that's somebody else's job. No, they have to do it all. And they have to be thinking holistically, systemically for that whole thing. And then when they start to, and, and early on, the, the key at that point is for people to be thinking growth, to be thinking culture, to be thinking 
Do we want to sustain this entrepreneurial mindset? And then what is that? What does it look like? And everybody, that, that new person that comes in, that's that onboarding, that orientation, understanding the origin story and getting them up to speed as quickly as possible so that they feel like they're a part of that team. When, it, when an organization reaches a certain level and you realize that it's, it's, it's large and it needs more structure and processes, then that person has to shift over into understanding uh, the, the strategic leader, understanding what are those systems, processes that need to get put in place, but that don't necessarily dampen the cultural or entrepreneurial spirit. It's this shift from an entrepreneurial type company to a more professionally managed firm. That's why oftentimes you see the entrepreneur does not survive that that transition, unless they've they've understood and they've 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 talked to somebody, they have a coach, and they understand that that is a shift in mindset. I remember working with one fellow, an EMBA student, who the question I asked him was. You know, where do you like to operate the best? He was a turnaround artist. See, he, he's, he's not a starter. He wants, he wants to come in to an organization that's already at that point, it's already going, and it's broken. He wants to go in, do his discovery, understand all the different systems, all the different t- you know, pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, and then, he's a fixer. And then and get that plane up and over the, you know, you know so it's... So I said, okay, that's really important. What's the criteria? What are you looking for? Know what it is that you're looking for and where you do your best work. So the term, I don't necessarily like it, serial entrepreneur. You know, it's like a person that, you know, starts it, starts it, starts it. I think it's really important for somebody to know how to... It's, it's a growth mindset. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. an orientation. It's, it's like, can you, can you make that transition and take that organization to that next level. And that takes a shift inside of yourself. Yeah, yeah. And that's a transition, it's a, it's a, it's a shift. Um, as you said, it's, 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 I call it the art of transitioning. Understanding that, oh, my role is, it's a shift in mindset, it's a shift in role, it's a shift in identity. Right, right. It's also, it's also something that uh, is not for everyone. Right? So I, I think oftentimes we, we have to recognize our own limitations and our own wants and needs and desires. Uh, you know, I, I can recall, you know, when I was uh, a researcher at, at both GE Research and at IBM Research, there were some people that didn't want to be in leadership positions. They wanted to be at the bench, as we used to say. That's what they wanted to do. Uh, they, they didn't want to have these additional responsibilities. And oftentimes for societal uh, biases or whatever you want to call them, we're sort of driven that, hey, the next step is management and leadership. Well, it's important to recognize that oftentimes that may not be the best thing for you. And, and helping s- someone like yourself help me think that through that, you know, having someone who can help me sort of think that through that and find out, is this the right thing for me at this point in time so, in my maturity in my career? So, so there's a couple of things that work there. One is the person who's thinking, oh, well, am I supposed to do this, right? Should, it's that should mindset. You know, someone can be a highly valued individual contributor and stay with the company for a really long time. It's also the culture of the organization. Does that culture, do the leaders in that organization recognize and value those highly 
valued individual contributors and realize that there is a place for them and, right. and, and, and give them the opportunity to continue to add that value without the pressure of, well, geez, no, no, you have to go, you have to do this next. You have to follow right. this prescribed plan of action. And the ones right. that are more nimble, the ones that are more uh, um, uh, flexible, I think are the more successful organizations. Yeah, and and that's an important point there that you just made about uh, being a leader or being the CEO in an organization. You want to make sure that your organization and your sort of uh, culture there doesn't force people into a certain path, right? You want to have multiple paths there available for individuals uh, because that's what's going to make for the most vibrant and intellectually diverse <laughs> sort of organization. So, so it's something that you, you, you said there too is a lot of entrepreneurial organizations or entrepreneurs, the organizations are small. There is very little career pathing. So now you're talking about larger organizations that have career choice and do they, are they, do, do they become system, systems heavy? Do they become so bureau, right. bureaucratic and don't hold on to that entrepreneurial spirit. Right. So, so th- right. there's a lot at play here. The, 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 I wrote this down this morning before our call. At MIT, they, we have a 360 called the Four Capability Model. And inside of it, I mean, it's, it's a really great model. It talks about um, uh, sense-making, visioning, relating, and inventing as the four essential capabilities. But, but there's adaptive capabilities. And so when I think about transformation, somebody that can transform, this is the area that I look in. Because transformation is possible. You can grow. And it's in, they, they have five areas. One is in resilience, you know, uh, uh, learning from failure, recovery. Uh, uh, the second is paradoxical thinking. I, I just love the idea of this. Can you hold two conflicting or opposite points of view at the same time, or are you so single-minded that you can't hold on to that? Because without paradoxical thinking, you, as an entrepreneur, you cannot pivot. Now, entrepreneurs are really uh, um, um, very high in paradoxical thinking. Uh, learning orientation, re- critical for an entrepreneur. In other words, uh, you talked about fixed mindset or growth mindset. Fixed mindset is an old way of thinking that you know we are the way we are and we can't change and we can't learn and science has now neuroscience has proven that our brains have neural plasticity and that we can learn and that a sign of intelligence is our ability to be able to learn and grow and and for a entrepreneur always having your your ears open your mind open to learning something, go, wow, I never, and, and always be asking questions, coming from curiosity first, rather than here's, you know, this is, you know, my way of the highway. The, the, the next is emotional intelligence and then leadership confidence. Leadership confidence, I'll go there first, is being able to step into leadership moments, knowing what is being asked of you. And then, Emotional intelligence, if there's one area that entrepreneurs can grow in, I think more, most is in this area of emotional intelligence, which is understanding what are you thinking and how are you feeling in any particular situation 
being more reflective. That's what leadership is about, being more reflective, and then also realizing that someone else has their own experience and being, again, curious about what are they thinking, what are they feeling, what do they want in this situation, and, and meeting, as opposed to always, always coming, you know, fighting each other, and it's the loudest voice wins. That, that's, that's not a great game to play. Right, right. Well, those are some really, really great thoughts there, Rob. So I want to take a step back. So early on, you said that you, you uh, come from a background of theater. So let, let's kind of go back and uh, maybe to your childhood, sort of where'd you grow up, sort of what were your experiences like? Sure. What did your folks do? Um, yeah, I, and how, how you kind of got here. So, so I didn't come from a family, a theater family. I, I, okay. I, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. I grew up in a family business. My grandfather was from Italy. He came over to this country uh, when he was 14, you know, total Horatio Alger story, ended yes. up in Providence, Rhode Island, um, worked for a florist, and right in the middle of Brown University. So it was a high, oh, wow. highly intellectual environment that we were, <coughs> that we were in. And uh, it was a family business, you know, my father, my uncle, I had two older brothers and a cousin, and grew up in the family business. And so there was a high work ethic. Being, yes. being the youngest... Uh, and, and sort of wired, I think, a little bit differently than my brothers and my cousin. I was, uh, you know, it, it was almost like, uh, was I in the family? Was I not in the family? I was always the afterthought. <laughs> and so it was never really, you'll, you'll run this business, you'll be in this business. So I was always looking, looking at something else. Um, yes. And I think... I'll give you one experience. Um, I think I read this article. It said teachers, teachers are extremely important as those, especially in high school and in college, to give you those the road signs that that help you make you know put you on a path. So when I was in high school senior year, uh, I went to a Christian brothers school, and there were three religion classes, and two were traditional, and one was Eastern religions. And I really took to that. And I started to explore all types of religions, Taoism, uh, Confucianism, Buddhism. I, I, it was an intellectual and also a heart pursuit. And I, it, I, I, it got me tuned into uh, more of the Taoism and Buddhism mindset. I took Tai Chi when I was, I started taking Tai Chi when I was uh, 17 years old. I'm mm -hmm. 64 now. I still do it to this day. And actually, it's probably one of the most important elements of being an entrepreneur is being able to manage stress mm -hmm. and be able, to, be able to see for the long term, not the short term. And that's what that really helped me to be able to do. Um, I ended up, and that was the, the pathway to uh, Clark University, where I hadn't really been thinking about school up until that point. I was at, took a psychology class, and I ended up in uh, at Clark. I got accepted. It's a really good school for psychology, which I didn't stay in very long. I ended up in mm -hmm. geography, and I was very curious. I was, and I've always struggled with adult ADHD, so it's like I was always bouncing from one thing to another, not able to really put a linear path together. So we always have to know ourselves, and so you know these are early experiences will show up. You know, are you a traditional thinker or a non-traditional thinker? And I think always I was a non-traditional thinker. So I ended up uh, at Clark University uh, 
in a program that was exploring the 25 least developed nations of the world. And I don't know, it was political geography. I just happened to be in it, started to like it. I ended up, I took a junior year abroad in India and Nepal, Kathmandu, at wow. 20 years old. My first plane ride was, you know, to New Delhi, I mean, from Boston. It was, that's pretty wild. Um, and that was a, that was a, it was somewhat cathartic. It was a deep experience. Uh, I ended up taking my first uh, mindfulness meditation class when I was 20 years old. That's 1975. Now mindfulness is an extremely, um, you know, um, know, it's a, it's a, uh, I don't don't know what the word is. It's, it's, um, it's, it's every day. It's accepted in corporate cultures. It's almost in the mainstream. It is mainstream now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so those things hold true to me uh, and for me uh, to, to, to this day. But when I came back, this is the interesting thing, transitions. Um, it was difficult. Uh, whenever you're in a transition, the thing that I've learned is uh, put a support team around you. Because transitions done alone are very difficult. When I came back from Nepal, it was, a, almost a, it was a cultural shock coming back. I was there for only for about four months, but it was significant because it was, it was like going back 2,000 years. I mean, India right now is, is very developed, much more so than it was in 1975. And so um, I did not have a support team around me. My family didn't understand it and no one else did. And so I did finish college and I was looking for something to do. I didn't have a path. And so mm-hmm. that's when I ended up in theater. I was introduced to a fellow that was a juggler and a mime and did um, some circus work. And I, I liked it. I, I was good at it. And mm-hmm. I ended up uh, with a street performance show. In three months, I went to school up in Maine at Celebration Mime Theater. Uh, fantastic theater still running to this day and started to develop I had a career path this was it and I stayed in it for 20 years I was a I became an accomplished tap dancer I studied with the late Gregory Hines I had a residency with one of his teachers mentors Honey Coles I was an accomplished wire walker I had done a an audition for a show in Boston uh, the the, uh, the theater director Bill Finley who became a very good friend of mine um, was a wire walker and he said if you want to learn this skill you know we'll put it into the show and I and so that's the thing about the theater that I learned is you have a vision for yourself what you want and then you go out and find it and make it work in other words you find the teachers to help you get there and I think that just that mindset alone for whether you're an entrepreneur or in an organization from a learning perspective, I think is critical. Rather than waiting for somebody to teach you, figure out what it is that you want and yep. go find somebody to help you. Rob, so, so, so I want you to say that again. You have a vision for yourself. Say that part again. So you have a vision for I, yourself. I think that's really, really key you, here. You know, as an artist, I had to have a vision for, for myself. I saw what I wanted to do with tap dancing. I, I saw the, the, the character I wanted to play. I saw the situation I wanted to be in. 
and and it was it was alive for me. So then I went out and found people to teach to to teach me to do that. And and that then I became and then I went on that path. Um, now with the struggle of you know, I was uh, you know again ADHD. I would I would say okay. I would go into the tap dancing. Then I would do a little bit of this. Then I would do a little bit of that. But because of that, I became a very well-rounded performer. Um, I, and, and I think I learned some essential lessons of performance that now I teach people. So one of the, one of the most important things is uh, when I was first starting out, I would watch people. I'd watch them. What do they do? How do they do it? How could they stop you know, random people, and, and again, the, the space is known for it. This is, I started out at Faneuil Hall Marketplace in Boston, and the space is known for it, but you still have to know how to do it. You have to send the signals right, right. that you know what you're doing. So I'd have 17 people around me, and like the wind, all of a sudden they'd be gone, and I'd be like, oh my God, how do you do this? And I learned, and I learned, and I learned, and this is the, th- the other thing is, um, you have to have a platform for failure. You have to have a place. I was bad for a long time. And I just learned incrementally. You know, they, they say the 10,000 hours. I yes. got my 10,000 hours because, yeah. because I stayed with it long enough to be able to all of a sudden get it. Get it. So let's, let's talk about something here. As you were saying that, it made me think of something. That uh, to this day, it seems to me that the performing arts, I'll call them, are, are still very much sort of, I'll use the word, apprenticeship-based, right? What you described is sort of you're an apprentice, you're an understudy, so, or you have role models and you're watching them and you're working with them. And I think if you go back, you know, 100, 200 years, almost all jobs were apprenticeship-based. <laughs> that was sort of how it worked. And we've really sort of morphed away from that in, from many instances, sort of in the uh, business world. So you, what are your thoughts on uh, that? I think this is a great question because uh, I, I think you know, I just wrote a book called Leading from Your Best Self, Develop Executive Poise, Presence, and Influence to Maximize Your Potential. It was uh, published by McGraw-Hill just this past November. And I didn't set out to write a book. Yet, when the opportunity presented itself, I jumped on that wagon really fast, and it just poured out of me. And in the introduction, I talk about this. I talk about the apprentice model of learning. You have the novice, the apprentice, the journeyman, the master. Journey person, right? But, but we talk about the novice, and that is the most important place because People are you know, they're at work, they, they read an article, and they say, well, oh, I'd love to learn how to do that, or I'd love to do that. Talk to them two months later, have you done anything about that? No, I haven't done anything about it. So, yes. so that novice is, they have curiosity about something, they might be introduced to something you know, from someone else, um, they have a, maybe an initial talent for it, but the hook doesn't get set. It's critical that if, that if you see something that is going to be very important for your career, for the longevity of your career, that you set that hook early and get, up and get, get into the woodshed. In other words, that's where, that's where the apprentice works, right? The tool, the tool shed. And, the, and, and you work with a coach and then they go. And what they do as the apprentice is they teach you, they introduce you to all the different tools 
of that particular craft. Here's this tool and that tool. They teach you how to use it, when you would use it, and you have to get in and learn all the different tools. That's the apprenticeship. Yeah. You know, Rob, so as you're saying that, it also makes me reflect back on, you know, my experience at at large companies, General Electric and IBM, um, there sort of was an opportunity for those types of things. If, if, If you talked to folks and said, look, I'm interested in this type of career, there were often times where they could give you those sort of development assignments where, where you would go do something for a period of time and, and you had to do a good job, but it was also viewed as sort of a way of you gaining that experience. And that's because there's, there, there is this career path in larger companies and particularly 40 years ago, 50 years ago when I was starting, larger companies thought about, okay, I'm gonna have this employee here for 30 or 40 years, so it's worth my time to make this investment. Now, the world has drastically changed, and if we think about smaller entrepreneurial companies, and I'm, I'm not a founder, I'm, a, I'm working in a small entrepreneurial company, how can I sort of get those types of experiences and coaching and sort of help my career along that you were talking about? Great question, and it, but, the, but, but it, I, I think you've presented, um, again, another very large uh, question, many questions inside of it. So one is, um, if you, it's the, the relationship with your, if, if you have a direct boss, supervisor, leader, whoever that person is, if you have a really good relationship with that person, if that person is invested in your development, sees your potential, takes the time to invest in your potential, and then asks you, you know, is, is working with you, then you might say, well, okay, this is, this is where you're working right now. But and you say, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious about maybe there are other things that I could do. That person might say, okay, why don't you take this little assignment over here and go try it? You, you still do your core job, but you go try this other thing at the same time. Temp- you know, 20% of your job, you go and, and, and do this. And you know, that's a good – entrepreneurs should, should be thinking that way to, to, to say, let me give this person – they still have to do their core job, but you're, you're, you're whetting their appetite. You're, 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 you're investing in them, and they are exploring things that they might not necessarily be exposed to in other ways. So I think it's an, it's an enlightened leader that, that, set, that gives permission for their managers to be able to do that. Um, the downside uh, of this, um, let's say, the apprenticeship model, when it, when it, goes, when, when it runs amok, is and I've seen this in some technology organizations where you have these little petty fiefdoms that are created. You have the leader that goes in, and they're the, they're the special, specialty technologist, and then they, they hoard their people, and they come in, come in and work for me, but it's almost like, give me your life. It's like, you know, it's like a, it's almost like a disciple. It's not an apprenticeship, yes. it's like a discipleship. And that doesn't necessarily work towards the benefit of the entire organization. It works for that one person to hold power, but it doesn't necessarily hold for the whole organization. Whereas if you have somebody, the, the best that I've ever seen it is I worked with um, one of the, um, say when I was, uh, when I made the shift from being a performing artist to uh, into this area of corporate learning, I was a top salesperson in a small boutique uh, a training firm for a dozen years. 
So I opened up the relationship at Harvard Business School, and American Express was one of my top clients. So I worked deeply in American Express. Uh, I worked both in the learning and development area um, and also directly for some great leaders. And one person comes to mind, and what he, what, at American Express, what they realized was uh, people come in, this is early 2000, that they would come into the organization and in nine months later, they would see another position that they wanted and they would apply for it and get it. Zing, and they would look at that. Then 18 months, zing, they would look at it. And all of a sudden, they realized there was all this movement happening at the, right at the early career part, part of their company. And that cost the company so much to lose somebody, have to get somebody else in, to train them. They realized that three years was the optimal amount of time for somebody to be in their position so that you learn it the first year, you, you deliver on it the second year, and the third year, you, it's like you're giving back. But it takes, it takes an inspired leader to be able to work that well. And there's this one guy, what, what he would do is, he would say to somebody that's coming in, you're, you're talented, learn it the first, give me three years. Learn the first, first year, learn it. Second year, deliver on it. The third year, let's work really closely together and plot your next position. So company's getting something from you, but the organization, but you're giving back, you know, it's like you're getting something, the company's getting something. And his colleagues would say, like, why, do you, why are you giving away that talent? Like, it's the opposite of that discipleship, right? It's, it's the opposite. It's saying, well, I never have to worry about losing talent because they're always, there's a line outside my door because there's a reputation or a brand that this leader has created to say, uh, I know that this person is going to help me in my career and, and put me on the right path in three years. So right, he div- right. that, that was what he did. And so it, was, it, was, it benefited the individual. It benefited the organization. That's inspired and enlightened leadership. Yes, excellent point. So let me go back a little bit to uh, the transition from uh, being a performer mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the theatrical way <laughs> uh, to to sort of uh, corporate learning and and training and, and and that shift. So talk to me about how what your mindset was in making that shift and sort of how you thought about that. Well, uh, um, I I came very close to I would say quote unquote making it. I was cast in a show in Boston in 1986. Uh, and it, the the tax law it was a it was it was really a great show. It had, had two great directors, music directors. I mean, it was fantastic. It was poised to be successful, but the tax laws changed. Reagan passed these tax laws that angel investors it was no longer profitable, and so it just bottomed out. So I kept moving along, and I did some really great work. But ten years later. Uh, I'm 35 years old and I'm realizing, you know, I don't have a career. I don't really have, uh, I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have a life. I wasn't saving any money. I think I needed to shift. I needed to all, mm-hmm. you know, I need to do something differently. You need to have a pivot. Yeah, I need to have a pivot. And so I ended up. And too bad Circus Soleil wasn't around then. Yeah, right? no, you missed the Circus Soleil uh, yeah. tidal wave. Yeah, right. Exactly right. <laughs> and, and well, you know, those guys came from the street. They were street performers, right? They were very enlightened business people. And yes. look, at, look at what they created. So um, you, you can, it all depends upon your approach. I always looked at street performing from a very professional perspective, and there were a lot of us that did that. 
you know, and so it's not. It's it was a it was a it was a venue to develop yourself. And almost all the people that started out as street performers had you know developed theater shows and went on to um, become you know heads of theater departments at universities. And so it's a very good place to start for certain people. Uh, but I'm at 35, and I. I hired a career consulting firm to help me, I'm in a transition, to help me um, ask myself the right questions. And I got it right away. I ended up making them hire me. And I became a counselor. And then I stayed in touch with a friend of mine at Boston University who ran a, a program for people with disabilities. It was out of Boston University, out of the Sargent College. Uh, and. Uh, people with emotional disabilities. And so in one conversation, he said that his job developer um, had just passed away. He needed to fill this role. And, and this was why my wife gave me great guidance on this, which she just said, this, I had the opportunity to step into and start over at 40 years old. My first job was at 40 years old. I took mm -hmm. a job at Boston University and I had to start over. I, I, but the thing is, it wasn't starting over. I worked there for five years, and I put 15 years of career development in those five years. So I, 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 could, I was a performing artist. I could be in front of any audience. I learned how to do that. Now I had to learn how to listen really deeply to somebody, somebody else. So I learned uh, 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 counseling skills. I got my enrolled, I got my master's in business in five years. I went to school, I mean, you know, it was like one or two nights a week. Um, and I, you know, so I was, and I, uh, I joined the university training group, which was, you know, as an entrepreneur, I would always say, well, if this job doesn't work out, I went over to the personnel office, introduced myself to them, and this woman there, Hillary, Hillary uh, really, we really liked each other, and, uh, and she invited me to join this training group. They did uh, corporate training ac across campus, so I was always like going, you know, I would always create options. And that's an important thing for entrepreneurs is always to create options, as many as you can, that, mm -hmm. you know, in case something doesn't, doesn't work out, you can pivot over. Yeah. So I, I started to teach corporate training classes. I, I got my master's in business. After five years, a friend of mine uh, was learning to become a coach. And he said, let me coach you, Rob. And, he, and I said, fine. He goes, what do you want? <laughs> and I, it was the first time I could answer him because I had a, I had a solid skill set behind me. And I said, I want to be introduced to two or three consulting companies that truly see me for what I have to offer. They see my skill set and go, wow, yeah, we can use you. Two weeks later, I'm in Harvard Square. I see an old friend of mine uh, from theater. He has this uh, French woman with him who was the head of... Human Resources for Société Générale, the French investment bank. And he's working for an organization that used theater skills to do corporate training, which is what I wanted to do. I, you know, it's like, I put the, my foot in that door, opened it up, they were doing auditions. I ended up working for that company as their top salesperson for 12 years. Yeah. So what are, uh, what are some of the skills that you learned as a performing artist that, that you use today? Uh, that's that's a, an essential question. One of the things that, as a performer, that I struggled with was 
I always tried to make my audience like me. I would cajole them. I would try so hard. And an audience doesn't like that. They don't like that at all. They want somebody to walk up that is confident, that is, knows who they are, why they're there, what they're doing, and the type of experience that they're, they're trying to create for somebody. And so that essentially is the thing. And I remember the day I had 300 people around me, and I'm bending down to get something of one of my, you know, my, for my next routine, and then I just paused, and I felt, literally, Bella, I felt something drop away. This need to be liked, this need to have to prove myself, this need to have to do something, and I just stopped and let it go, and I looked around and everyone was still there. And everyone's still watching, waiting for something to happen. That's the thing, that moment of anticipation. This little girl, two years old, with a blue like princess dress on, she had a balloon, red balloon tied to her wrist that was up in the air, and she came out totally unaware, totally like in this, right into the middle of the, of the circle. And I'm looking at her. Who do you think the audience was looking at? Not me, the little, the little girl. So I just followed the attention, and I walk up to her, knowing that I need to get her back to her parents, mm-hmm. put one finger under each arm, lifted the arms up, and went, ta-da, and the whole audience applause. I was able to turn the little girl. So what happened? What happened was the audience saw the care I was taking, that it wasn't, I wasn't just pushing hard to do my thing, that you leave space for something to happen. So the most essential lesson that I learned was to allow, don't try and connect with the audience, allow your audience to connect with you. So from a, any presenter I work with is how do you take the stage? How do you walk onto that stage? And this is if it's presentation. Yes. Uh, and do nothing. There's a great expression. When you take a deep breath in, and you breathe out. When, it, when you breathe, your audience breathes with you. So you take this, it, it's like a conductor. When a conductor, you know, the, the orchestra is, is, is all like warming up, then the, the conductor, she walks up onto the, onto the platform, she goes, you know, she, like, like that. And then she, every, she raises the baton and everyone takes a collective breath together. So they, for them to get in sync with each other. So you have to get in sync with your audience. You have to get in sync with your team. And you do that uh, physically, emotionally, mentally. You have to do it on all levels. It can't just be a mental exercise. It, it, you, it has to be a, a holistic exercise. So <clears throat> let's say you're working with a, with a client. You're, you're coaching. You're coaching me. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I'm a... I'm on stage, I'm in the classroom, and uh, sometimes I'll say, you know, I sort of have my lecture prepared, and it almost feels like, even though it's not pre-recorded, it is fundamentally pre-recorded, right? I sort of start, and I sort of go through it. And how do you, you know, so what sort of advice do you have for me, right? I'm not really letting the letting my students engage with me in that sort of example, because even though I'm live, 
you know, it's like it's like being sitting in the audience in, in, in on a Broadway theater, right? There's yeah, there's some interaction, but the really skilled performers, the really skilled faculty that I've seen are the ones that, as you described, can take that moment when something happens. They're aware of, number one, they're aware that it happened. And then number two, they can leverage that and turn that into something. So what, what sort of uh, skills uh, can I learn to, to, or what can I learn to do that better? Do you have some thoughts so, there? So, Bella, I mean, again, you, this is such a big, wide question. Yeah, well, uh, I tend to ask big questions. So, so that one is, I was trained as a performer to put my press, to expand my presence. So I want to know what it feels like to be in the back row. I want to know what it feels like to see, you know, uh, to see the person that's going to be in that room. And what does it take for that person to reach me if I'm going to be that the person way in the back. So I have to know the parameters of that room. And as a, so as a performer, I need to be able to reach everyone to be able to expand my presence out. Um, I need to be able to, um, like, I have to think about who my audience is. You know, if this is a classroom, I have to be thinking about what's that, you know, what's that, what's that learning arc that I want to bring people through you know, do I want to present an idea first, and then uh, you, you always have to engage them. My, I'm sitting at the ta- at the dinner table with my daughter last night, and she said to me, we "We're talking about teachers," and she said, "You know, the best teachers are the ones that get the kids involved right away." And I'm that's the that's the approach I take with with uh, with my classes. Uh, so from a so so here so whether you're a leader at work. You're leading a meeting, whether you're a leader in the classroom, your job is to show up fully and choose to be present. That means preparation. You have to be thinking about who's going to be there, what are your core messages, what's that flow you're going to create. Not over-memorized, just like what, what, what are those key steps that you want to take. And then when you show up in that room, whether it's at small meeting, large meeting, classroom, you have to get everyone in that classroom present and engaged. You could do that kinesthetically, get everybody up. You can do it through asking a powerful question, have them turn to each other and, and begin to engage in something. Open their thoughts up to considering a different point of view on a subject. So I'm always going to be asking people, like, uh, how do you take the stage and how do you, what, what do you do with that first 30 seconds? How do you, how do you, how do you really... Uh, set the tone, um, grab attention. So let me give you an example. I'm working with the uh, president of a local bank here in Boston. Really great guy. And he, is, uh, he reached out to me uh, to help. Um, he was asked to do a keynote presentation to uh, 500 credit risk officers. And this is a big event. Great guy, great ideas, not the most engaging presenter. And so we had, we had to do two things. One, we had to work on story. We had to work on vocal clarity, articulation, and projection. And then we also had to come up with an idea. Now, this is after, like, I worked with him for six weeks on this. Six weeks, twice a week. We really, so two weeks, three weeks in, actually, we came up with a story 
and then a new idea. So I didn't want him to be behind a podium. I wanted, but he it was 45 minutes and he couldn't memorize the whole thing. So we had to like print it out for him, but I didn't want him to be behind the podium. So I said, let's get this printed out in, in a binder, the presentation. We need, to have to, we need to put that binder on something. So uh, let's get a music stand. So he walks onto the stage with a binder in his hand and a very large music stand, puts the music stand down, opens up very deliberately the binder, puts it down. What do you think people in the audience are doing? They go, who is this guy? What's going to happen? He created anticipation in the minds of the audience. So all of a sudden he had everyone's attention. Then he looked up over 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 the music stand and he said, my wife and I are getting out of a cab in downtown Nashville, 10.30 p.m. We just came back from the, the Grand Old Opry. Fantastic show. Even if you're not a country music fan, you have to go. Bam. He's, he totally grabbed the attention of his, of his audience. He told a story that was his story that actually had a great transition into community banking theme. You know, it's about his wife turns to him and says, I, I, you know, I'm hungry, let's get something to eat. He goes, sure, anything, you know, sure, let's go, but anything but barbecue. They walk down, they see an Italian restaurant, they go, okay, let's go in. They walk in, doesn't look like an Italian restaurant. The woman there seats him in this, in this vinyl, you know, vinyl booth. It has duct tape on it. You know, they hand him the, 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 the menu is plastic and grimy. And they go, should we stay? Well, it's packed. How bad could it be? They order the, the, the most easy thing. Margarita pizza comes. It doesn't look like a margarita pizza. They eat it. How bad could it be? Didn't, it really was awful. And he said, it didn't make us sick. We got through it. It was an acceptable risk. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about today. Is community banking is about an acceptable risk. Bam. Totally engaged his audience. So it's the same thing with the teacher. Is you have to be thoughtful about how you set the tone right at the beginning. So I think uh, one of the other things I heard you, you say there is this, is this use of storytelling <laughs> and metaphors to kind of bridge, to number one, to use that to connect with the audience and then use that to bridge into your topic or your discussion. Exactly. It's engaging, it's relevant, it's memorable, it's meaningful, it's relatable. Right, and it's a great connection tool. Correct, it's yeah. It's a great, great connection yeah. tool. It's a great skill. So... You know, as you're as you're going through that, which which I, I was very very valuable to me. Thank you. Uh, I was thinking of this notion of oftentimes uh, when we prepare for, uh, and I'm thinking more more in tunes of my business career. Uh, I would prepare for a presentation I was giving, uh, whether it be at a conference or at, at work. You know, to a conference room of four or five or a dozen people, and. We tend, at least I tend to really focus on the content, mm-hmm. right? Ma- making sure I got the content. But I fundamentally spend very little time sort of preparing for the presentation itself. Rehearsal. I mean, you said. Rehearsal, yeah. rehearsal. You know, the woman gets out of the cab on 57th Street, walks up to the guy with the violin, he goes, How do you get to Carnegie Hall? He looks at her and goes, Practice. <laughs> right, if, right. if you don't, I, mean, I can't tell you how many leaders I've worked with that spend all the time preparing the slides and then they rehearse it in the cab right over. It's the, right. It's the, it's the reverse for performers. I have, perf- I have 
practiced over a hundred hours for a ten-minute routine, so that it was perfect. Yes. So yes. if you're going to rehearse, it needs to be rehearsed. If it's going to be, you're going to memorize a script like on. Uh, you're going to memorize a script. You have to memorize it, internalize it, so that when you speak it, it seems impromptu. There's a great yes. expression. It takes three weeks of rehearsal to be fully spontaneous. <laughs> rehearsal is the key. Practice in getting the words out loud. Yes. You know, I'm often amazed. I'm often amazed at musicians when when I see them perform and, you know, pick your favorite musician who's been around for 20 or 30 years. They have all have a couple of sort of key signature songs. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine they've probably played those songs thousands and thousands of times that's right and and it because they every show they have to play that song or two and it still looks like so spontaneous well that's the key right there that's the key is how can you bring it to life every time right right so uh uh, this is this is really fascinating I, i find this conversation really really great uh we've been going uh almost uh 55 minutes here uh and uh, so I want to respect your time. Uh, so I had a couple of, of closing questions here. Uh, given given um, sort of the topics, at, uh, given the topics at hand today and the things we've talked about, what are sort of a couple of key takeaway lessons that you'd like to leave with our audience? Uh, it's a great, great, great question. Uh, you want to, as an entrepreneur, I'll go back to the beginning that I said, you know, um, enthusiasm and passion. What do you, re- you know, do what you love. Do what you love and you'll never, you know, you'll never go astray. No, a lot of, it, 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 that's not necessarily the most practical advice because they say, well, if I, how can I make a living doing that? I'd love to do, you know, say, I'd love to be able to play violin, but, you know, it's, it's finding the, Finding the passion or the enthusiasm within the role and the and and the and and the technical aspects of your job that you're doing. In other words, it's up to you to imbue your work with um, with uh, and, and be fully engaged in your work. So, as an entrepreneur, you know, find something that like it's like my theater teacher said: if you can quit now, quit because the road is too hard which means you have to love it so much that you'll stick with it. And then, but the other thing is, don't wait for the perfect thing to come along. Jump on the wagon, get moving. Uh, It's like Einstein says, you don't learn to ride a bike by looking at it. You ride in motion, right? You get on the bike, you learn to ride the bike in motion. So that's the key too, is you have to just get into motion and learn and learn and learn. Excellent, excellent thoughts. Uh, so, Rob, if uh, if someone first of all, uh, give us the name of your book again. Leading from your best self, uh, McGraw Hill. And I assume it's available on Amazon. Yes, among it other is. Places. Yes, it is. Excellent. And uh, so, if people want to connect with you, if they want to reach out to you uh, with some follow up uh, engagement or Great. questions, uh, what's the best way to do that? So, uh, my company. The name of my company is protagonistconsulting.com. So P-R-O-T-A-G-O-N-I-S-T consulting.com. You'll see it's a newly refreshed page. 
I do uh, open enrollment programs, uh, two-day open enrollment programs in the Boston area. Uh, I just did one in May. It was sold out, and it was very powerful. So I do those either as a two-day standalone or I add, add additional coaching as well. So people can reach out to me through my website. Um, I'm also in the process of beginning to build out some more um, video-based learning than in support of the book. Uh, so that'll take that that'll take some time, but um, love to hear from anyone. I will always follow up. Well, that's great. Uh, I will make sure to put the book and uh, protagonistconsulting.com into the show notes so people will see it in there. Uh, Rob, it's been a real pleasure. I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks, Bella, and thanks everyone else. And please uh, uh, let me know if I can help. Bela, wow. First, this is a great career story. I think this person so far has the, had the most unconventional path of all of our guests in the, um, I don't know how many episodes we've had, 36 or whatever this is, right? Most unconventional career path, by far. Uh, but I thought his points about shifting from this idea of shifting from initiating to sustaining types of leaders uh, and how leaders need to go from managing individuals to managing teams was really cool and how he used his background as an artist, really, and a performer uh, to help coach people and, and entrepreneurs into, into gaining this mindset, he called it. And I think from a mindset, once you have the mindset, you can gain the knowledge and the skills, right? I think a mindset only by itself isn't going to get you there. But the mindset allows you to be open to new knowledge and to be open to working on improving your skills. So I thought this was cool. I thought this was really a key to growth. What did you observe uh, about the interview and how does it jibe with your experience from your VC days? You know, I thought this was really neat. From He talked about maintaining poise under pressure and under stressful conditions. Because, uh, you know, he says when you're, when you're performing, things don't always go like they're planned. And somehow you, you have to sort of uh, react to that and deal with it. And in the, uh, one of the companies I had, we had this sophisticated piece of equipment. And our sales guy uh, was so good at doing demonstrations on that. And quite honestly, for the first you know, six months of our business, when we'd have potential customers in, the demo, the demo never went as planned. There was always something that didn't work like it was supposed to. And our sales guy, um, he had just this great, great ability to, to the customer would never know that the, the demo didn't go the way it was supposed to. And, and the worst thing that we could do was to have the engineers in the room because they'd see it wouldn't go right. And, and right away they would react to it and then the customer would know. But the sales guy had this great poise, this great ability to sort of say, okay, this is what happened. Now, how am I going to bridge this to the next piece? And, you know, I have a similar story to when we would have companies come in uh, and, and pitch their business plan to us at the venture firm. And, you know, myself and my two partners are sitting in the room and, and, the, and the guys come in and they start pitching their business. And, you know, one of the challenges is when you're in that situation, you know things are not going to go as planned in the business. So one of the things we want to probe a little bit is these entrepreneurs and these founders' ability to handle unanticipated situations. 
So we would ask them questions, um, you know, I'd say throw them a curveball or, or try to disrupt the flow. Because oftentimes you would sense that even though they were doing a live presentation, it was almost a recording. It was almost so well rehearsed. It was a Broadway play. And what we were trying to do is, is try to get them to, to dance on their feet live and, and get them to react to, to things that you know are unexpected. Because that's what being an entrepreneur is all about. It's the ability to deal with that unexpected and do it with poise. And so I thought that was really interesting, the way Rob talked about how his theater experience and his street performing experience gave him this real solid foundation of ability to react to when things didn't go well and do it in such a way that uh, it was it was a positive experience for everyone. Agreed. Uh, it's neat. This idea of flexibility and ability to pivot and learning orientation, all these things that, um, you know, time and time again are identified as, as key uh, capabilities uh, that entrepreneurs need. It's neat to see that he had kind of has systematized his ways to, to train that into people. So, you know, again, what started with skepticism on, on, on my part, right? I think there are some, this idea of opening the mindset and using some tools um, that you borrow from different fields uh, and, and bring it to bear on entrepreneurs. So neat stuff. Um, but here's another question for you, Bela, and applying this into kind of the rest of the world. Um, you know, I, I loved his ideas about kind of being emotionally intelligent and being open and being curious uh, and how that's really important um, for entrepreneurs. But how do these traits align with kind of what we've seen in the startup culture in the last several years or even longer than that? But they're really making the media now this kind of bro culture and these cultures that are uh, um, abusive and disrespectful to, to women um, kind of these things that are really high drive, high, high driving or hard driven kind of expectations without a sense of balance um, that I would argue are the opposite of emotionally intelligent, right? Decisions that are being made and there's ethical issues and all kinds of problems. We've, we've seen it, right? Starting at Uber and, mo and moving on, there's been a lot of these in the news in the last couple of years and they're addressing those issues across Silicon Valley and the startup scene. But how do you, how do you jive that? This idea of, yeah, entrepreneurs need to be emotionally intelligent, open and curious, but we see these people that, that aren't um, and, they're, and they're successful, What's the takeaway there? Well, I think, Mike, they may be successful, but it, they're successful in the short term. In the long term, at some point in time, uh, as we've seen, uh, that catches up with you. And it catches up with you whether you're doing that in your individual life or your career life. Uh, I think one of the things that I think about is this notion that uh, people confuse high standards with sort of uh, being mean. In other words, in order, in order to have high standards, in order to say, this is, this is the standard we must meet, you have to do it my way or you have to do it uh, you know, a certain way or we just have to have this sort of uh, uh, very rigorous, very structured environment. And those are different things in, in my mind. High standards... Uh, whether you're talking about quality of a product or performance of the product or performance of individuals. You can do all of those things in a compassionate, uh, intelligent, uh, non-abusive way. But what happens is people, can, I think people confuse those two things. 
and and sort of they say, okay, in order for me to have high standards, I got to make sure that everyone's working here, you know, 60 hours a week, because that's the only way. Well, that's, I don't think that's true. I think if, if you have this learning environment, if you have a vision for your business and, and you can, you can sort of talk about that vision, as Rob said, sort of in a storytelling and metaphorical way to make that message meaning and lasting, um, I think, I think you can have high growth, high performance, all of those things and without having sort of this abusive, um, nature, uh, in a business. And, and I just think when you have that, it eventually catches up with you. And think about the guests that we've had, Bela, right? And we've had guests that are, are running successful businesses, maybe not on the scale of an Apple or things like that. But we've talked to a lot of people. Nicole Snow, right, comes to mind, right? As somebody who really tries to balance these. So I like the fact that we've really identified some unique individuals who have this ability to balance um, uh, driven and expectations for excellence with compassion and kindness and a focus on people and making people better, um, that you can do that both. And then now today, we, we just talked with somebody who can coach and can help people if you see a gap, right, between where you are and where you want to be. So it's neat. It's a, this is a bridge, right? Yeah. And, I, you know, the thing that as I was talking to Rob, it reminded me, reminded me of, if you, if you look at the best athletes in the world, uh, all the ones who are playing at the top of their game, they all have coaches. Many of them have emotional coaches and many of them have, you know, if they're golf, they have a swing coach or, you know, they have, if they're playing basketball, they have a shooting coach, take whatever sport you want. So here's the highest performers in the world and they're constantly trying to improve, not just by themselves, but in sort of this coaching uh, mode. So if we're running a business or we're starting a business and we're in a leadership role, I find it interesting that we say, no, no, I'll just figure out how to do this. And uh, we don't use uh, coaching and consultants as much as maybe we should. Agreed. Good. I think that's a neat point to wrap it up at. And uh, thanks for bringing Rob on the, on the show, Bela. I appreciate it. I learned a lot. Yeah, it was great. And we will have links to his... Uh, his webpage, which is protagonistconsulting.com, and his book, which is uh, Best Self, uh, leading, excuse me, it's Leading from Your Best Self. Uh, we'll have links to that in the show notes. So thanks for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciated it. And uh, that's it for this week from uh, upstate New York. Mike, I think you have a couple things you want to say. I can do my usual two closing points. So thanks again for joining us. And first, if you have questions about what we've talked about today, suggestions about topics or potential guests, please feel free to get in touch with us. The best way is via email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And my ever-present request that if you like what we're doing, please hit subscribe on your podcast app uh, or a like or whatever the, your mechanism for showing uh, some positivity too. We'd appreciate it. Uh, and if you've already done all that and you want to be radical and write a quick review, that's great too. All these things help us gain a little traction. Uh, and again, if you know some people that might think this is interesting, please feel free to share us with them. Sounds good, Mike. That's it from Schenectady. All right. This is it from Münster, Germany, over on the other side of the Atlantic. Going to go have schnitzel tonight for dinner again. <laughs> Wonderful.
Wish All I right. was with you. See ya. Yeah, auf Wiedersehen. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.